Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Sponsorship is a key marketing strategy for many airlines right around the world, and we often see them sponsoring high-profile sports who have big and global TV audiences and reach. But increasingly, we are seeing airlines add or increase non-sports properties to their portfolio, and one of those airlines is Etihad Airways, a truly global airline, not just in terms of status, but also the way they approach their sponsorships. And joining me on the show to discuss sponsorship is Simon Hawke, Manager, Sponsorship at Etihad Airways, who is responsible for leading the airline sponsorship program in Australia. It's a great chat and some great insights into how they structure and approach their sponsorships, particularly what Simon explains is their three Fs. Welcome to episode 47 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston. Wherever you are in the world, whatever your role is, be it rights holder, brand, or agency side, it is awesome to have you listening into the show. It's also great to hear from you, even if it's just to say hi, because that means a shout out on the show. And a shout out and a huge thanks to Stephanie Martin, who got in contact via LinkedIn to nominate Pat Gallagher as a guest on the show. Stephanie is Managing Director and Co-Founder of BFWD. She's a storyteller and a brand strategist, author, big game, bigger impact, and a professor. Sounds uh, very busy. Uh, And interestingly, Stephanie worked with Pat as VP Marketing and Communications for the San Francisco Bay Area Super Bowl 50 Host Committee. Pat was the Executive Vice President, Partnership and Communications for the Super Bowl 50 host committee and Pat's going to join us on the show in the coming week so a shout out to Stephanie hope you are well and thanks again for dobbing Pat in to come on the show we are certainly very much looking forward to it Another shout-out goes to John Pugh, who's Manager, Commercial Solutions at Nielsen Sports. And John also connected via LinkedIn and wrote, Just heard the podcast for the first time. I listened into the Rebecca Stevens episode. Great stuff. I work with Rebecca, and she always has great insights on things. Thanks, John. Yes, I also enjoyed hearing from Rebecca, and lots of our other listeners have also commented on the great episode as well. John, I hope you are well, and thanks for getting in touch. This episode, we're playing catch up a little bit. We kind of got off schedule when we decided to release episode 45 and cut together some of the best bits of the show so far. So to catch up and make sure we get all of the content in, I've recorded two of Sam Irvine's blog chats. The first is about his insights from his recent trip to New Zealand for the Sponsorship Summit. Here's Sam. Sam, you've been away. I've been a lucky man. Yeah? Anywhere nice? Uh, Fiji, <laughs> Bali. I think last time we Actually, spoke, you... I just come back from Fiji. Had you? Yeah, and we, I was com- I was saying how good uh, the kids were on the flight. Not so when I get to travel by myself, it's not such a bad thing. <laughs> no, uh, Mrs. Irvine, it's uh, very hard work. What? Um, but you did go somewhere nice, went to New Zealand. Yeah, I love going Auckland. to New Zealand. Yeah, I've been there a few times actually. My in my past life, I worked within uh, rowing, so there was lots of good events and lots of good, a really good course over there, world champs, etc. So um, I've seen a bit of New Zealand, both islands, and Auckland, quite a nice place. Harder to get around than I thought. It's almost like a um, a poor man Sydney. Yeah, I apologise for anyone who takes offence of that, but there's more hills in Auckland than Sydney. <laughs> it's much nicer than Sydney. It's but not very... as painful, but I, w- I was losing my patience with the Ubers. I'll give you that <laughs> really. <much. laughs> uh, I just expected it to be as easy as Canberra to get around, so I was very naive. But it is very chilled. I love going there, even though you go there for work. I, I always feel a little bit relaxed when I'm there. I love Kiwis, and I, I, I hope they love us. And I'm certain there's times when uh, Aussies don't do ourselves too proud in other countries. <laughs> well, we keep we keep losing the rugby, so that helps with the relationship. <laughs> well, we just won. We just won, and no one wanted to talk about it. Not a soul wanted to talk about the rugby. But no, the, you're right. The people over there, it just it's a it has a relaxed vibe. It and, definitely does. And you were over there for? I was over there to see some really key clients that we've got. We've got some wonderful clients based all over New Zealand, but some great ones located in Auckland and Waikato region. But there was also a a fantastic conference slash summit yep. called the Sponsorship Summit run by a conference crew over there. So that was really cool. And uh, as you got on the plane, you've put together, had a bit of a think about the, uh, the couple of days that you're in Auckland and that conference slash summit. 
that you attended and you pulled together some some key learnings for us. Well, I knew knowing uh, knowing the two of the directors I work with really closely, <laughs> <laughs> who I work for, were going to say to me, "What'd you get out of it? Was it worth a while? <laughs> was it money well spent, etc." So I knew I was going to have to uh, have to think about it anyway. But I, I was sitting there, you know, three nights away from the kids. What what did I get out of it? What did uh, apart hopefully- from three nights away from the kids? <laughs> And love you, Rochelle. And so the, uh, I think I wonder. I was I was sitting in in the Qantas lounge, going, "What, what did I get out? What did I provide back as well?" So not just uh, in you know one way transaction. Um, and for me, yeah, there were five really sort of key things that I'd identified that this one this conference helped provide, but also that experience of being in New Zealand as well helped me provide. Cool. Let's jump into it. What's the first one? For me, it was collaboration within the region is key. Now, Aussies and Kiwis, we, we have such a similar culture around. We're pretty chilled out. We're pretty relaxed. But we also we also want to be best of breed. We're all, we also want to be as professional as possible. And, you know, we're quite close. Like, it's two-hour flight from Sydney, two-and-a-half, three-hour flight from Sydney. So, geographically, it makes sense that we start to work together. Because we are isolated as a region, right? Like, we're in the, you know, Southeast Asia, Australasia region, whatever the <laughs> what, title is. Yeah. But we're kind of stuck down in the corner by ourselves. Oh, definitely. And I think... There are so many things we can learn from each other and we can work from work, you know, in this same space, whether it's a brand or a rights holder or an agency, that we don't need to be reinventing the wheel. Um, we can really learn from what gets done in different sports, from different regions, because New Zealanders do a really well, really great job around activating with banks is what I really noticed when I was over there. Financial institutions are really sort of savvy and they don't have to be the big ANZ banks and things like that. But at the same time, we also have that, the similar population where we're quite digital savvy we're all keen to learn we're all keen to sort of be part of the wider picture and i think that if australians and new zealanders could work out not just conferences to attend with each other but how we can do um you know more trade more trade summits or we could do more traveling that involves big key events then i I think both regions will really develop and uh, and benefit from it very good collaboration is the key that sounds like you've led with a big important one that's good second no matter the industry we can all learn from each other so it wasn't a sport sponsorship summit which for me was great because you could actually really learn from the arts Mm. from government from agencies from charities all those types of sectors that normally as a if you're involved as a sports right holder you don't really have many touch points with and they're really doing some really cool stuff. We got to hear about a really great activation piece that um, a local council did around uh, street art and things like that. And, and when you get a chance, jump on um, on the Sponsorship Summit website and, and check it out because it was a really cool presentation. And you sit back and my background is, is all, all sport. So to be able to sit back and go, hang on a council who's really under-resourced here can put together a really cool event like this that grabs attention, that grabs likes, that grabs, um, you know, newspaper headlines, then surely we can learn from those as sports, we can learn from agencies, we can learn from all those types of things. So. Yeah, I always think it's interesting. I, I find sponsorship is quite a an, an insular industry and then sport itself is an insular industry. But I went to the sponsorship summit that you went to. I went last year, and my favourite presentation was actually from the the lady from New Zealand Ballet. I thought it was fantastic. Mm. I learned heaps of different things. So it is key to look outside your your area, um, as you said with your first point. Collaborate if you can, but even just looking at other areas, you can learn so much more rather than just trying to do what other. If you're in arts, just look at arts. Or if you're in sport, just looking at sport. Or if you're in a charity, just looking at charities. Don't just follow. Go and look at other areas that have sponsorship and see what you can learn and adapt from them. And uh, we joke a little about about this in the office about that term, oh, but we're different. And a lot of the time that's a negative, has negative connotations with it, right? Oh, but we're different. That doesn't apply to us. And what we should be taking out of it is, oh, we are different. So we can use that in a different way. We're not necessarily copying or, or you know, and, and to um, credit Sean Callanan, still with pride, is that these are things that where you see best of breed in arts or you see best of breed in, in government space, then you can you are different enough to be able to develop that and sort of tweak it to make it worthwhile in your sponsorship Yeah, space. just to, just adapt it. It shouldn't be a, well, they're doing A, B and C, and you say, well, A, B and C wouldn't work for us, but... B, C, and D might. Don't just dismiss things. See how you can adapt them. No, definitely. All right. So no matter the industry, we can all learn from each other. What's the third one? 
rights holders still need to have the tools to draw out key information from the brands. Now, one could assume that because we're in a room, a big sort of conference space, we're all there for the right reasons. Well, hopefully we are. We're all there to learn. We're all there to talk. We're all there to share ideas that perhaps either a proposal might just fall on a brand's lap or or they might start to tell you all the key areas that you need to focus your proposal on, etc. And it, it definitely isn't always the case. Now, just because a brand has sent a representative of theirs to the summit doesn't mean that one, they're they're crying out for rights holders to to throw proposals at them or two that that's the right person you need to have a a, a chat with either so that might not even be the right person to sort of give you the information you need but there were a couple of sessions there where there there was opportunities for the brands really to open their doors and no holds barred give the give the rights holders some real key sort of insight into what they should be doing or what they might be doing wrong and and it didn't feel like the brands really took it or grabbed the bull by the horns in that space so that was still became apparent to me that we still need to have the key. We, I say, if you're a rights holder, still need to have those keys to unlock those doors. You need to know the right questions to ask, the right people to approach, the right time to do it as well. It mm. might not be at lunchtime at a conference. It might be get the right details, go and take them out for a coffee next week, etc. It's an interesting point because rights holders would quite often be sitting back and saying things like, yeah, but if the brands told me more and they shared more, then I'd be able to give them better proposals and and help them more. But it makes the assumption that they actually need your help, Mm. that they don't have a marketing plan, which includes sponsorship, that is – that, sorry, it makes the assumption that that isn't working well and they need you as a rights holder to come in and help them. And save them. That's right. So they don't need to share this information because they don't have a problem they're trying mm. to solve. Yes, they always want to be doing better, but if life's pretty good, they're not going to invite heaps and heaps of proposals from people mm. that they don't need. They get enough of those already, mm. don't they? Mm. So, so, so find a way to show you can value add without being a hassle, I guess, is sort of my point there was – just because they're at this conference or just because they're in this space doesn't always mean it's an open open shop front. Yeah, you talk about taking them out to coffee for coffee and all that sort of stuff. It is still a long game. It's mm. not just because you get the opportunity in front of someone that you gotta you gotta try and get that shot right there and then. Okay, number four. Digital is still the sleeping giant of sponsorship. And still. we all it feels like it still is, all right? Especially in our region. We hear some really cool stuff over in the US, some some stuff in the UK that they're doing around VR or AR. Um, and, and, you know, we just really need to start to focus on, on ticking some small boxes here. And that might be things like using Snapchat better, which hopefully we're going to hear about sort of soon. We are. Do you know space. that there's a... No, I didn't actually. I was just, that was a complete accident. I think the so. next show is going to be on Snapchat. <laughs> there we go. So okay. using, you know, the filters and being cool with that in that space, being really smarter around the use of Facebook and using all the filters you can in there by identifying the data you need, right? So being geo-targeted, all those types of things that we rights holders at the absolute top level are doing quite well, but that mid to lower tier in the right holder space in Australia and New Zealand are still quite immature in this space in digital. And mm. I think that's where, um, that's what provides so much potential in this space still. Mm. It is tough though, isn't it? Particularly for the, the smaller medium rights holders that don't have big budgets or don't have three or four people in their sponsorship or commercial team to be able to take advantage of you know, 48,000 different channels that everyone says, you should be on Snapchat and you should be doing more with video. And you're like, I haven't got the time or the resources. So it is it is tough, but we do need to spend time analysing where our time and our resources are best spent. But again, it's it's always going to be a And it's a change. changing game too, isn't it? Oh. It's always each, each every six months you could say, yeah. well, that's no longer a priority in that digital space that's yeah. moving here over here. So. Exactly right. Okay, number five. Size doesn't always matter. Now, we got to see in this conference, we got to see some really cool presentations. We got to see some really cool um, videos put together. We got some really wicked ideas from some really small rights holders or some really small brands. By small, I mean comparatively compared to a um, to a Nike or compared to a really huge rights holder like, a, um, like the AFL, right? So these rights holders and these brands were able to sit down and go, here's how we were smart with our time, with our resources. Here's how we identified working with people who are best of breed in this space. So we picked out this agency to work with because they were really good in this space and they provided a good um, working relationship. It wasn't because we're the biggest and best and we can throw lots of cash at it or that we've got all the creative directors in the world that can throw lots of bright ideas at that. They were smarter and they were more nimble. So it didn't. that for me was really heartening to see that 
it's not just really big stories. We're not just hearing about NAB and their mini footies, mini mini legends sort of footy activation, which we all sort of might know and love. You can see some really cool smaller banks in New Zealand that are focused in regions have run, you know, put together TV shows by themselves around banking, but sold it really, really well and, and involved sponsorship in that space, etc. Mm, very good. So just running over those again, collaboration within the region is key. Number two, no matter the industry, we can all learn from each other, which I think is probably my favourite. Number three, rights holders still need to have the tools to draw key information out of brands. Four is digital is still the sleeping giant of sponsorship. I'm going to put in brackets there. It's always going to be a challenge. <laughs> and number five, size doesn't always matter. You're looking forward to going to the summit next year? Yeah, definitely. I think it should be really cool. Uh- the part that I really enjoyed about it, it was a relatively small room, but it meant that you could get around, you could identify who you wanted to talk to. It's a two-day event, so you could use day one to sort of take it all in, and day two, you could be quite smart with who you want to talk to or what you're hoping to get out of it, those types of things. Putting you on the spot, what's one thing you, you would change about it? What would make it better for next year? It would probably be at least getting an attendee list slightly beforehand, even if it was only a day beforehand. Um, We never actually even received a full attendee list even while we're there. So you're sort of looking around, you're on LinkedIn checking out profiles and trying to work out who might be who. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas, uh, yeah, well, you could have been more strategic beforehand and, and sort of set up some outside coffees as well beforehand, which would have been ideal. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. As I mentioned earlier, we are playing catch up a little bit with discussing Sam's recent blogs. So we get to hear from him again. And this time, Sam's been pondering activations. And as part of his ongoing series, he's written a letter to his younger self with some advice around activations. Here's Sam. Sam, welcome to the second segment of the show because we're we're going to put this in the same show because we're, we're a bit behind. So I apologise if anyone is uh, sick of hearing my voice already. Welcome to the Sam Irvine show. <laughs> so, But part of your some of the blogs that you write for Sponsor, sometimes we frame them as a bit of an ongoing uh, series or, or, or theme where you write a letter to yourself. So in this ongoing series, uh, you ponder... Uh, how, we sh- how should we say this? Your past life. I mean, you're still alive, but your your, your past career uh, as a commercial manager at a rights holder. And we look at the things or you look at the things that you wish you had a known then. So this is the advice that you are, that a wiser, older, smarter, more organized Sam more wrinklier, yeah. would, <laughs> would give to his younger self to help him in his job. Um, and you've been pondering something recently, which which was the catalyst for writing this letter. Definitely. And for me, it was around activations. And it's it's such a key word that we all sort of throw around in the commercial space. Um, and it can mean a million different things. It doesn't necessarily mean one th- the same thing to a rights holder as a brand. And I sort of found this out the hard way in a few different sort of examples um, I've given in the blog as well. So um, for me, being able to sit back and see some really cool things that are happening at different events or online, um, or even through television or broadcast, uh, I was I was sort of inspired to sort of write down a few words and give myself some uh, some tips from in the past. And you've done that by posing or, or framing some questions that uh, a commercial manager and a brand should be talking to each other or asking each other. No, definitely, and and so really they should be. There was for me four key sort of things you should be trying to sort of pose or or at least outline or put put you know air some dirty laundry in a way sometimes as well right was um around yeah four really key things and the first one for me was what are you trying to achieve by having an activation in your partnership right if you're a bright rights holder or your brand either way why is an activation what whatever it may be whether it look look like a, a physical activation something online but why is it important to your partner why is it important to the brand or why is it even important to you to be part of that mix of what you're offering in a relationship so are they trying to have a physical presence at an event or are they trying to leverage other partnerships into one big opportunity um so really just tease out of that partner why and what they're trying to do in the, with with having an activation as part of it there's an example that i quite often give in in meetings and when i'm meeting people and we're just talking about sponsorship uh, i may have shared it on the podcast uh in the early uh, episodes I can't actually remember, but the example was somebody that I know uh, sold a sponsorship to somebody. They had a big event coming up. That um, that brand had an activation at that event, and this person rang up the brand to say, "Just checking in, what you're going to be doing for the activation on Saturday or next Saturday?" And the brand was 
uh, what? And he said, you know, the activation where you, you, know, you put up a tent or you do a face painting, pa- face or-, painting or pass the ball or whatever it might be, <laughs> count the jelly beans, whatever it might be. And they said, uh, well, to be honest, we didn't actually know what an activation was when we got the sponsorship. You just seemed really keen and that it would be really beneficial for us, which it would have been. Mm. But there was an assumption there that they knew what an activation was and that it was going to help them achieve some goals. So uh, I think it is important to say, what are you trying to achieve? Because if it's community engagement, yes. If it's brand awareness, yes. If it's networking, probably not. No. If it's relationship, leads. If it's a relationship building, probably not. Mm. Maybe depending on how you execute it. So it is important to think about what are you trying to achieve and then work backwards. Mm. Yeah. All right. I think also then one, and that sort of brings us to the next sort of point I've made is what resources are available. So if you're just assuming that the brand's going to be the one doing all the work or they're going to engage an agency, then you're already on the back foot there, right? You haven't communicated with them. All right, who's doing what? What does it look like? Who's engaging? Well, let's put a whip document together just for this activation piece, etc. So. Are they financial resources, physical resources, hands on the job, etc.? What's available from either side really are key. You need to sit down and identify that from early days. And it's probably like it could be hard at that point, right? You so say you can have an activation at the grand final or the community day or whatever. What would you think you'd want to do? And they're like, well, we don't know just yet. Don't park that conversation. Mm raise some of the things that they should be thinking about. So, for example, well, you know, a lot of people put up marquees and then have staff come and look after those marquees. Would you have staff available? We don't need to know how many staff and you don't have to have a marquee, but you don't want to get to a point where they go, well, we've put up the marquee. Are you sending your staff to man it for us? Uh, No. So at least try and get some of those things that they should be considering Mm. around resources in their head, even if it's not clear at that point in time. And I think, too, identifying what barriers, as you sort of raised a bit there, what barriers are there currently in place that might make this a difficult thing to to achieve? So if it's a key weekend when all their staff are taking time off (laughs) or if there's other events that they run, if there's a big sponsor and they sponsor other sort of sports or teams in in that region, then they might not necessarily be available. So then you can be quite savvy and go, all right, we don't need hands-on deck let's be smarter let's have more of an online presence in that weekend etc mm. so yep good points number three who's a creative one i'm not usually right so normally <laughs> i would sit down with that brand and number three I got what you ideas that's do my- i have yeah that's definitely your, your space compared to me right and that was a hard one because often you're either put on the spot by the brand or you're trying to be the leader in this space and go, let's get, let's come with a really cool path the ball or let's do an online competition that involves ambassadors and et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, if that's not your strength, don't hide behind that. Let's be open and honest about it and let's either, one, engage an external party to help with this or if that's not really available, engage others within your organisation and the brand's organisation that might have strengths in those spaces. Collaborate, come up with some cool ideas. Don't sit there and think that you have to be the one that comes up with these award-winning ideas. Hmm. I like that. Maybe pizzas and beers in the boardroom and just get everybody in there and some white paper. and Just spitball and you never know what can come out. You might have some really creative people that are in operational roles that can really sort of help in this space. Very much. uh, No idea is a bad idea at this stage let's just see what we've got okay so what ideas do we have is number three number four how would you like the outcomes reported on this so one really identifying what are the key outcomes that you want to achieve from this is it brand awareness is it community engagement is it sort of building a bigger database to communicate to so really identifying that from the outset then having that asking the simple question how and when do you want to be informed of this outcome of this activation it shouldn't just form part of your general chit-chat or your Mm. general catch-up. What it should be is if it's going to be something important in the relationship, it needs to have a separate meeting set for it at the end or it needs to have its own little miniature report run if that's important to them, and it should be. So I think really identifying, all right, what's a key time? We know our end-of-season report's coming up in three months' time, but it's not going to form part of that. It needs to be done before and et cetera. Uh, And what are the metrics you want to hear from us? How many people were at the event on the day or how many click-throughs did you get, et cetera, right? Those are all key things we need to report. But how do we then link that back to their outcomes as well? Yeah, and I think that's a really important question to ask because it would seem to me that a lot of rights holders would put pressure on themselves to report around an activation, but maybe pulling together a whole lot of information that the brand doesn't actually need to know. And you're stressing, you think the more stuff we give them, the better it'll look. But ultimately, if we just think about it, 
you step back, these should be aligned to your SMART objectives. So one, the outcome should be measurable and we know what we're trying to achieve. We might not have a smart, uh, a smart goal directly linked to this activation. Might be a number of benefits being utilised across mm. the portfolio and across the years. But if it's something as simple as, I mean, take example, for example, the Wheat Bix triathlons that the kids mm. do here in Australia, they travel all the way around Australia and the kids turn up to the local events and it's it's a non-competitive, it's a participation event. But um, they've got some big brands there where you're filling in forms to go into the draw. Now, the brand probably really only wants to know how many kids participated. And how many people do you think came through the door? And you go, well, over the 10 events, there was, you know, 10,000 kids that participated and that roughly equals 30,000 people because, you know, mums and dads come and grandma Mm. comes and all that sort of stuff. And they go, great, that's all we need to know because we've we've got the forms. Mm. Mm. So you don't have to be stressing about putting together this massive presentation and all this information about it It was in 10 locations and 56% were female. And they probably don't care because their activation was specifically driven around building a database and getting people. Right? Mm, no, exactly. And I think really... But you're, know, sorry to interrupt, <clears throat> but you're never going to know unless you actually have that conversation with the brand. Don't assume that more definitely. is actually going to be better for you. No, definitely. And I think too, going on to that, having that conversation, talk about the negatives too. Right? Be a little bit frank and go, we don't think this worked or we didn't give ourselves enough time or we'd have it in a different position if it's a physical activation, etc. So just being frank and open and go, all right, this is what we would do next year. So don't come to them necessarily with problems. Come to them with solutions on things that you thought were most potentially negatives from the day. Very good. I feel, if you, listeners, if you'd like to go and read that full letter from Sam to himself, uh, you can do so. Just head to sponsor.net. Sam, I feel that you, the younger you, is better for this letter. I'm definitely a better man than I, than I was a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Simon Hawke, Manager, Sponsorship at Etihad Airways, is responsible for leading the airline sponsorship program in Australia. As you'll hear, Simon is uniquely placed in the sponsorship industry, having worked all three sides of the triangle, rights holder, brand, and agency. Simon manages the local portfolio in Australia for Etihad Airways, but needs to do so in the wider context and approach of a global airline whose head office is in the Middle East, yet has a strong sponsorship presence, not just in Australia, but in the UK and North America as well. Here's Simon. Simon Hawke, welcome to the show. Thank you. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to ease you into the interview and obviously help the audience get to know you a little bit better. First icebreaker question is, if you could be anyone else in the world for the day, who would it be and why? Well, I think a few things would be pretty good. Um, I reckon with the Ashes coming up, I I wanted to play cricket for England for a while. (laughs) I wouldn't mind being Joe Roots. I think that'd be pretty fun, it, unless it was a fielding day, of course. But yeah, I think that'd be a pretty good one. Would you bat or bowl first in the first test? I think you've got to bat. Mm, agreed. And hopefully, I'll be there. <laughs> Very good. Our second icebreaker question is: What was your first ever job? Um, my first job, I uh, brief. Well, for when I was a teenager, I got roped in to do a um, a silver service waiting job for a day only a day because actually there are some a few skills involved which i didn't end up having it's things like balancing numerous champagne glasses on a on a on a tray and those sorts of things so um yeah i was a silver service waiter i think would be my first proper job there's nothing like easing into it yeah (laughs) now simon you've worked on all three sides of the sponsorship triangle can you tell us about your story so far Sure. So, um, <clears throat> out of uh, university, I, I I tried to pursue a bit of a career in cricket, which sort of led me into the sports marketing world and in a, an agency called Havas Sports and Entertainment, which was a uh, it pr- looked after a whole load of the the major partners um, for the ECB. So that was things like uh, my initial job was looking after c- accounts such as Hugo Boss in England cricket. Um, Air Asia uh, looked at who did Man United and Formula One, BMI Airlines, Spring and Rugby, those sorts of things. And it was very much a, a we were uh, it's quite a, a commercial entity. We're, we're working um, to on behalf of clients and occasionally on behalf of rights holders. And uh, I suppose that was because it was quite a small agency. I was uh, quite you know you got access to and view of quite a lot of the processes quite early on. 
but that was a very much I mean things like PR I started off I was very much in a PR space so I used to, it was quite good I used to enjoy um I was working on PR days with England cricketers you know trying to get things into the various papers if, if a photo went in it was a success if it didn't it was a it was a failure sort of thing and then sort of I was there for about four years by the end it was you know in the space of managing budgets and you're getting to work out some um, brokering contracts for the rights holds with ECB strategy etc but uh, and after that I moved on to uh, another agency role I was at some place called MEC Access which is the sponsorship arm of uh, MEC which is a big media agency part of the WPP group so that was uh, going into I was in the global solutions section section that's more of a um, a global account manager role and so that was more of a more strategic so <clears throat> whereas in the first one I was very much it was very hands-on account management this was <clears throat> linking into things such as um, you know looking after European wide accounts or even further I, I looked after Amlin uh, insurance their, their European rugby sponsorship their title sponsors of one of the, the major competitions over there um, Xerox we looked after their European sponsorship business things like Cirque du Soleil that they, they did at the time and it was I suppose a lot more stuff around being strategic working very closely with um, with research we had big um, access to those sorts of research arms and also the, the whole there was a lot of science that went down behind the ideation process you know coming up with ideas and that sort of thing so it was a <clears throat> while it was at still agency side it was was a bit different um, and that was when I moved to Australia and, and my first job here was with the Wallabies where I was uh, a senior partnerships manager within their team. So I looked after uh, the, the major accounts such as Qantas, Broadcasters, Castrol at the time, those sorts of people. And uh, also a number of other areas such as uh, you know, sort of things I would look after would be the management of the player appearances the NRC commercial program for a while there, those sorts of things. So, and then, uh, and now here I am. I'm, a, I am the uh, uh, manager of sponsorship here in the region for Etihad Airways, and uh, it's taken me onto the, the third side of the triangle. And I've been here for about uh, a bit over a year and a half. So it's a really interesting journey, having worked all three sides of the triangle. What are some of the differences that you see? Uh, well, there's, I mean, certainly in the specific roles, there's everyone's got the same fundamental aim, I suppose, in, in we're trying to create an interesting use of sponsorship or an effective use of a sponsorship. But yeah, there definitely were, were some different onuses on on how the role was shaped, I suppose. Rights holder, um, you know, you're, you're, I suppose you're on the front line of the, the commercial versus the on-field performance line so it's working closely with the, the team management working out what can we realistically deliver um, how can we make sure we're not affecting team performance working with the coach those sorts of things it's also very much more in the in the logistical side of it so how can we physically deliver these rights and even coming up I suppose with working at what's available what coming up with things so I suppose that's slightly different than if you look at the agency which again is uh, which is different to a brand in, in that they're on the side which is again actually spending the money but on the agency side I suppose you're in the space where you're very much needing to justify yourself so it's a very a very proactive space I guess you, I mean it's all a significantly more idea brainstorms pitching putting yourself forward for awards I suppose that sort of self-promotion piece which is um, you know a huge part of that piece and then in the brand again I suppose now on it you you're the side where it's a, it's a cost to the business. So I think there's just, to a much larger extent, you are being asked the question and asking yourself the question, is this the best use of my money? And how is how is that tracking back to, to the specific objectives? Mm, I think that's an interesting thing for our listeners who are on the rights holder side to be always keeping front of mind that brands are under pressure to be justifying their spending internally about whether it's 
helping achieve their goals. Now, Simon, you told me the other day that your first day on the job at the Wallabies was the day that the Lions tour landed. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with rugby, that's a a once-every-12-year tour to a specific region. Um, It's a huge occasion. Tell us about what that was like. Well, uh, I suppose it was... I mean, it was a little. In, I was, I sort of in the deep end in a certain sense because I was, I was um, looking after, for example, DHL, who were the, the major, the name rights of the tour, and Qantas and a few others. But I suppose on a, on a positive, it, it wasn't really. We, we certainly weren't in the strategic stage. You know, you, we were in very much delivery. What? How are we going to do? What are we going? How are we going to do all this? So. Almost, I was. It was. It was just a quite an enjoyable time to be there, and it's quite good to in a in a in a job like that to be joined at the busiest time almost because it was it was probably never that busy again in the whole time I was there because it was such a huge event. So I mean, in a sense, I got some. I was almost as a fan anyway. I was getting you know the best view on the pitch um, out of nowhere because you know the job came up very fast in the end. <laughs> So I mean, it was very enjoyable. I mean, the skill that it was in terms of what I had to do, it was it was a lot of the things that I I was you know I knew about anyway. There were nuances and things, but it was it was certainly um, it was certainly more enjoyable than anything. The burning question is, as an Englishman but an employee of the Wallabies, who are you cheering for? <laughs> well, my um, my dad's actually a, a New Zealander, and my my mum's a Scot, so I've got. And I'm English, so I've, I've always had issues with working out who to support in rugby. But I, I genuinely, I, as as when I did work for the Wallabies, I did genuinely support the Wallabies. It was, uh, you know, you have a vested interest. You get to know the players. I, um, no, I, I honestly can say I was supporting the Wallabies. Correct answer. Well done. Now, can you <laughs> give us give us a lay of the land in terms of what sponsorships Eddie had have in place at the moment and that you're managing? Sure. So. In uh, this market, we have down in Melbourne, we've got Etihad Stadium. We have um, Melbourne City Football Club in the A-League. We have the Melbourne Recital Centre, and we also have Sport Australia Hall of Fame. Up in Sydney, we have uh, Sydney Opera House. And we also have um, uh, deals with uh, IMG Fashion Week um, around uh, the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week and also taste festivals, and there's a taste festival in both Sydney and in Melbourne. And with those sponsorships, what is Eddie had generally looking to achieve with them? What are the objectives? Well, I suppose to give some context as well, I mean, the, the airline is, there's been a bit of a, a journey through the way that sponsorship has worked for the airline. Um, it, it's a re- reasonably young airline, so from 2003 launching. And uh, more recent than that, 10 years now in this market. So, you know, the initial role of sponsorship was to, it was a big brand builder. Uh, so that meant moving into different markets and, and sponsoring various different properties, which were um, had great uh, relevance locally. And, and they all did a fantastic job in their own rights um, in terms of that brand role. Um, the, the, as the airline has gone on a bit, the, the focus obviously is, as with all brands, changed slightly in that there's it's more into a, a second phase of trying to tell a bit of a story. So rather than having what what it meant going to different markets was there were lots of different properties that didn't nec- didn't necessarily relate to each other in terms of one global um, promotion. So um, we've got in place a, a bit of a global strategy around um, three Fs, which is football, food, and fashion. And all of that is underpinned by Abu Dhabi. And so what that does is it gives us a bit of a global um, a, a global positioning in terms of our sponsorship offering. So that f- football is underpinned by our city group partnerships. So that is um, most obviously Manchester City, which is also an enormous deal for us. Huge global reach, genuine um, eyeball, millions of eyeballs on every single game. But it has a global angle in that we're also linked in um, in a relevant way with, with New York, uh, with um, and also Mel- with Melbourne City as well. So, so that's our that's football. 
Um, then we've got fashion, which is IMG, which is an IMG deal, which, which takes us into fashion weeks all around the world, which has been New York, London, Milan, Berlin, Mumbai, Sydney. So a number of different, um, different events around the world. And so, and it, all these events are, you know, roughly the same. They have their tweaks market to market, but it's a, it's a certainly a, a, rough, a rough positioning on, on, on where we can promote ourselves. And that works a very nice positioning in terms of the brand and, and the right brand values. And also a good audience for us. It's a very flying industry. And then taste is all about, um, well, food is underpinned by taste, and that takes us into a huge number of other markets, which, uh, which is all about driving our culinary onboard offering. So we, we have our in-flight chefs who, who come down and do live demos, and we're trying to promote because a, a lot of our marketing, one of our angles is, is certainly pushing that we have a very high level of, of, of culinary offering with our five-star chefs and a number of other things. So, so what that means is that um, we've, we've moved from trying to promote well, without throwing it, there's obviously going to be different dynamics, but that's just a slight step change in how it is. So there's now a global positioning on how we, we do that. And everything, again, is underpinned by Abu Dhabi. So Abu Dhabi is, is the, um, the hub of the airline, and uh, a major part of the, the tagline is from Abu Dhabi to the world. So a major part of the whole remit of the airline is to promote that. So, so what we're trying to do, therefore, is, is primarily promote those those brand assets but then with it with a local market twist as well so as i mentioned there are all these other other pieces that fit in which also have great roles like etihad stadium and sydney opera house so these um, and we can use them in various different ways in local activations to drive various messages so and in terms of the activations we do we've got um probably break the brackets down into three areas which would be sales client engagement and then brands and sales would sit as anything between selling, you know, working with the right seller to arrive flights that they need anyway, um, to selling to their consumer databases, to even signing up ETA guest members. Um, then client engagement, obviously, is use of hospitality and tickets, also events. That's a big part of what we do, engaging our important clients from, from all ends of the scale, um, trade and corporate. And then brand, that is really everything that's consumer facing in terms of the brand. So what are we doing? That includes things like social media content or working with the media and PR in any sort of way we might. Fantastic answer. I love the whole framing around those three key pillars of football, fashion and food and very clear on those three objectives or the main ones that you're trying to achieve in sales, client engagement and brand. Through those three key focuses and those uh, objectives, what are some of the activations that you, you're doing at the moment to help drive those objectives? Well, from a, from a brand side, so uh, let's tying in with those three. So we do have a lot of uh, work and activity going around fashion. Um, for example, we'll be the presenting part of the Australian Fashion Laureate Awards, which is happening on Thursday or tomorrow. Um, and so, and we've also, so what the sort of thing we would do is we try and, uh, we'll have, have an angle in terms of what, what, what is our area of relevance? And often that is we, we can, we fly in talents. And so we try and make sure that everything we, you know, we, we can justify what we're actually promoting. So, so we might fly in, for example, last May at, at, um, at uh, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week in Sydney, we, we flew in. Uh, Georgia Fowler, who's who's a Victoria's Secret model, and we also flew in Kim Ellery, who's a famous Australian designer. And through them, we use them for things like PR and various other bits and pieces, um, as well as creating content. So content, certainly at the moment, working closely with Sydney Opera House and a couple of big content pieces. There's thing live in the market at the moment called Expand Your Horizons, where we're working closely with, um, with the team there to, I suppose, give other people the opportunity to expand their own horizons um, by winning flights with us. So I suppose ultimately it's trying to find a, a message that, that we can, that's relevant to the particular property um, that we can promote in some way. Um, in terms of client engagement, we, we've got, I mean, there's obviously the hospitality, which is ongoing. We have, we have a significant amount of tickets in market across the year, but we also create probably a whole series of events 
which are sort of level up, I suppose, from the hospitality, even where we try and create bespoke experiences, package up rights together. Maybe it'd be training sessions at Melbourne City. Maybe we'll bring in Sports Trade Hall of Fame members who are legends of Australian sport into various dinners, or we can use SHead Stadium for various, um, you know, change room tours, the rest of it. So the, there's a whole list of events that we do across the year, you know, upwards of 20 that we would do in that space. And then sales, a few of the examples, we got we got a lot of a lot of our activity um, will be related to inviting people to sign up to ATA guests to enter. So that sort of ties us into sales a bit. And we're exploring a thing called Ticket for a Ticket, um, which is a nice sales one where if essentially if you if you buy on us, we um, we give you free tickets to a sponsorship property. So, so those are a few of the examples of what we're doing at the moment. I think it's uh, it struck me as interesting that when we're looking at budgets for activations, that uh, one of the lucky things that you have in your back pocket is that you can probably fly people around to events and talent and all that sort of stuff for for nothing because you can just put it through the business. Yeah, no, that is a benefit. I mean, there there it, it, there is a a cost though. We we sort of don't have a totally open book on that but there's certainly it's a it's a basic it's a very fundamental thing that we can use that, that i mean it's a, a very relevant thing as well hmm. how does your role fit into the australian etihad team overall and you mentioned it before obviously head office is in abu dhabi what role does head office play in all of that so the way our sponsorship team is structured is that um we have um, what we call regional sponsorship managers that report into head office. So, so we have an equivalent of me who sits in America and looks after the American market. We've got someone who sits in London, looks after the London market, and then I look after Australia and Asia. And we report into into Abu Dhabi, where where all that's where um, the head office is based, of course, and all the senior management is based. Um, so. You know, they, they are, they set, for example, the, th- the three Fs, you know, all the major strategy pieces are, are set in that sense there. And my role is, is to lead the sponsorship program in this region and maximise the existing investments, I suppose, and develop a strategy to ensure we, we do achieve our objectives. Um, I mean, what this role was initially run out of HQ, but by giving it a local role, it's given us a bit of a better chance to get the right outcomes because every market's different and Australia has its own specific quirks. And it's um, with it being such an important market for the airline and with such a big portfolio in the market that, that was important. So I'm tasked with ensuring that we take advantage of, uh, of all the local market opportunities in terms of how closely to work with the actual team. I mean, a lot. So I've got regular communications with the senior team back in head office. We have to, I have to report back regularly and how everything's tracking that links into sales, brand value, everything, and includes a couple of trips to Abu Dhabi a year where, where we'd have strategic sessions on what's going on. Um, there's, I mean, there's a whole team tracked with measuring and tracking results, so working with them on ongoing is, is very important. Um, and then also working with the US and European people, that's also very important. So we, we do have a, a very huge global portfolio, which I haven't mentioned, but, you know, the likes of, I've mentioned a couple of them, but you know other things like the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix or those sorts of things. Um, we we do have access to other things that uh, that we work together to try and help each other out on. Um, and then internally as well, I, I have a lot of work to do with the um, with people like I mean, sponsorship is really a platform for the for the business, I suppose, to try and reach their objectives. So I work very closely with people in sales, with people in in media, with people in marketing to try and make make sure that people are using the assets we've got in the right way, I suppose. Then externally, we've, um, I've got, you know, we've got a number of right hold, rights holders and I work very closely with all of them on an ongoing basis. Well, speaking about those rights holders and working with them on an ongoing basis, clearly sponsorships are you know, best managed as partnerships. How much of an active role do you play in in driving those partnerships versus leaving it to a rights holder or, or putting the, the responsibility on the rights holder to really drive the partnership? Well, I would say that a lot of bonus has to come from me in terms of 
and from the brand, I suppose, on in terms of objectives. And and from there, so once that's clarified, and we we might you know work out what we what would be a good year, what would be what would mean success for the year. I wouldn't say that I'd necessarily. Sometimes I would have specific ideas on what we're going to do, but often it's I'd say more than healthy to be opening it up and going what what are some good ideas here. Sydney Opera House in particular are very good at um, coming up with good ideas. Um, so I would say that that as long as there's a clarity on the on the specific objective, I think it's any any ideas are welcome. Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I think the uh, I have Sam, one of our staff members, uh, on the show earlier in this episode, talking about that exact same point. So, and we we, we would agree with you. Uh, we talked about, or, or you nominated that there's those three F's: the football, the food, and the fashion. I'm assuming your portfolio is not evenly split between those three pillars, but clearly two thirds of those pillars are not sport related what do you see as some of the key differences between sports sponsorships and and non-sports sponsorships so you know around food and fashion or anything else really well i think that the fundamentals are the same i mean you're doing them you the, the reasons for doing them are pretty much the same but most likely you're doing whatever it is you're doing to try and target a certain demographic um so you know the demographic of of person you're you're targeting is more than likely significantly different. Um, I mean, there are some differences in that you don't get automatic, or often you don't get things like automatic brand media value in the same way as you would. It'd be less likely to have a broadcast element like in a sport. Plus, I find that the rights holder is is a bit less likely to to own the rights of the talent in the way that a club might. So you know, appearances ambassadors might still and probably would play a big part in how you might want to activate, but you'd probably need to work on additional costs around that. So I'd, I'd say that fundamentally the same, but just probably things are that you would, you're, you're trying to reach someone different and that allows you to. Um, and, and, and you probably have to work a little bit harder occasionally. And maybe, but you spend less on the. You're more than likely to spend less on the on the rights fee, I imagine, um, just as a general rule, um, which would leave, in theory, more for the activation fund. But so, uh, which would allow you to do that. But yeah, you probably would have to have more of an onus on the activation fund. You've worked both sides of the fence. If we put a fence between, even though we talk about sponsorships as being relationships, we still uh, use the phrase on either side of the fence. But if we put a, a fence between rights holders and, and brands, you've worked on both sides. What's, what is one thing that when you're on the rights holder side of the fence, you wished the brands understood or just got better about what you needed to do? Well, I don't know if I'd say didn't get it as such, but I think... I. I mean, a lot of what happens a lot of the time, say a brand's invested a big amount of money into a property, you know, they don't really want to hear from you that you're not, they're not able to access the most high-profile player for their big TV shoot because he's got a sore toe or something. You know, there's, there's always those sorts of um, issues that come up. Um, and, and most of the biggest issues I found, certainly working with Wallabies, were, were based around player access. Um, and I, I think it's less that they don't, get it um it's just more that it's tough to you, you go in you would go into a deal like that um and when you're spending that sort of money you sometimes it's it, a particular player can make a bit of a difference to how to a perception of a campaign so i can see how a lot of onus is on that but i suppose that's that often comes up as the biggest sticking point what about on the other side now you're on the brand side what is something that you wish that when you were when you're dealing with rights holders, that they just understood a little bit better. I think that probably comes back to objectives again. Um, occasionally, it might be that you 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 want you want the rights holder to be very conscious of what you're trying to do, as opposed to any objectives they might have. But just being very clear on. And not trying to push their, their objectives as much, but understanding that, you know, because all the brands will have hugely, coming from hugely different worlds half the time, 
and were often very different from what the rights holder is representing. So they do have their own internal challenges. So I suppose it would just be um, just that understanding very specifically what the brand is trying to do and being conscious of that. Tell us about one of your favourite activations, either one you've executed or one you've seen somebody else execute. What was it and why was it great? Um, well, that actually was a great example at the, at the AIU was um, the Samsung's slide liner. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that was, I mean, I was involved in that actually right at the beginning when, it, when it, the idea first came up. Um, it wasn't actually attached to Samsung at the time. And it was, you know, I suppose a great, I think it's a great example because one, the idea is very, very good. No one had actually done that. Um, you know, there'd been best seats in the house, but there hadn't been a moving seat. Um, but it, it took, so one on the, on the right shoulder side, it took, and I can confirm it did, took huge amounts of act, work to try and work through some logistical issues from things like, you know, blocking seats behind, covering other signage, taking into account international rugby union laws around health and safety and how close you could go to the pitch all those sorts of things. So a huge amounts of extra work um, from the right soldiers to actually make it happen. And then on the Samsung side, they uh, they invested, you know, huge amounts of money and, and did a fantastic job in terms of promoting it across numerous channels, using it in TV ads, um, making it a fundamental part of their business. So um, I thought that was a, a fantastic example. Yeah, I'd agree. I absolutely loved that idea when, when I saw it. As we spoke about before, you are someone who is unique, having worked all three sides of the sponsorship triangle. So I'm interested in where you think the industry is heading. Um, well, I think that's a few a few points probably. Um, I think that I mean historically it's been very very sport focused. I think that more and more. It's probably you'd probably say it's been reasonably sport and male dominated. Um, certainly, getting less so, and I'd say that trend will continue. You know, the growth of women's sports. Um, additional, the sort of like example, for example, with us, you know, in making huge investments into into non-sport sponsorships. I think that that will be a trend as sponsorship, you know, allow it gets used as a tool to reach um, a less traditionally male demographic. I think. The digital side of things will obviously affect the way that the way that it all gets played out. Um, you know how, how activations are. How do we actually reach people? What, what are the onuses on from brands and how they're using it? And then I'd say a, a big one actually would be in linking to the digital piece. I think that they'll become much more rigor in terms of how do people actually measure and, and the success in measuring activations in the digital space. I think at the moment it's actually quite tricky to get a proper view on on how much value any sort of activation has done because a lot of the value in theory goes into the, the digital world, you know, whether that be Facebook or numerous um, digital platforms, that it's very hard to track and very hard to put an actual brand value on. So I think I think someone will, will work that out at some point and, uh, and that will allow brands to be a lot more clever in that space. Very interesting. Fantastic chat, Simon. Very insightful. If people want to get in touch with you, connect with you on social media, etc., what can they do? Yeah, always happy. I mean, LinkedIn is the best one for me. Very good. Simon Hawke, Manager, Sponsorship in Australia. Thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at Eddie Hat Airways. No problem. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed that chat with Simon and I found the framing of their portfolio across those three Fs of football, food and fashion really interesting. I'm sure other brands approach their sponsorships in a similar way, but I've never heard them speak openly about it. So it was great to hear that. It was also interesting to hear how they are different yet align with each other somewhat and are executed to achieve those three core objectives which are very clear, sales, client engagement and the brand. And as Simon mentioned, if you want to connect with him, LinkedIn is your best option and there is a link in the show notes or just search for Simon Hawke. 
That's about all we have time for for episode 47. Don't forget to head to sponsor.net to read Sam's two blogs in detail. And of course, if you aren't getting the blogs or the podcasts direct to your inbox each week, then shoot me an email or sign up at sponsor.net. If you'd like a shout out on the show, just like Stephanie and John, just get in touch. I'll make it happen. I can't stress enough how cool it is for us here at Sponserve to hear from you, even if it's just to say, hey, my name is such and such and I work at ABC and I happen to listen to the show. So get in contact. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And of course, you can connect with Sam Irvine on LinkedIn or email using sam at sponserve.net. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.